Sir Ernest Shackleton's 1914 expedition to Antarctica is one of the most astonishing adventure stories of all time. A ship crushed and sunk by surging walls of ice. No ship built by human hands could have withstood the strain. She went down, bows first. Her stern raised in the air and the ice closed over her forever. A crew stranded for almost two years. An 800-mile journey by lifeboat, a heroic rescue, and then a century of trying to find the shipwreck. In 2022, an international team of explorers found Ernest Shackleton's ship, the Endurance. And today, they'll tell us how they did it. I'm David Pogue, and this is Unsung Science. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod, or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Season 2, Episode 7, How They Found the Shipwreck Endurance. Could somebody please tell me how the story of Ernest Shackleton has never become a movie? I mean, how is this not the greatest adventure ever told? 1914, British explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton plans to become the first man to cross the Antarctic continent. As he later wrote in his memoir, read here by voice actor Tim Redman, The first crossing of the Antarctic continent from sea to sea via the pole will be a journey of great scientific importance. The distance will be roughly 1,800 miles. Every step will be an advance in geographical science. According to legend, he puts this ad in the Times of London. Men wanted the hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. Shackleton is famously charismatic and persuasive. He gets his men all right. They call him the boss. But he still needs a ship, and he hears about an amazing brand new barkentine ship painted white and gold sitting in a Norwegian shipyard. She's a beauty, built from oak and Norwegian fir, with a hull 52 inches thick, made to withstand polar conditions. She's got three masts, plus a 350-horsepower coal-fired steam engine. And her name is Polaris. (laughs) I bet you didn't see that coming. Two Norwegian explorers had commissioned Polaris's construction, 
but before they can make the final payments, they get into a spat and the band breaks up. So Ernest Shackleton swoops in and buys the ship for a song. He retrofits the middle deck for cargo. He repaints the ship black. He equips her with three rowboats, each around 22 feet long. Finally, he renames her. Inspired by his family motto, Fortitudine Vincimus, by Endurance We Conquer, he dubs her Endurance, with no idea how prophetic that name would turn out to be. Only one sign of the ship's original decoration remains, a metal five-pointed star on the stern. On October 26, 1914, Endurance set sail from Buenos Aires, carrying 28 men and 69 sled dogs. In December, Endurance entered the Weddell Sea between the tip of South America and the Antarctic continent. The Weddell is one cold, nasty body of water. It's famous for thick, long-lasting packs of sea ice held in place by a massive circulating current. The Weddell Sea is the only region in Antarctica where the ice survives the summer melt. Meet polar researcher Lasse Rabenstein. Should I pronounce it the German way? Should I say Rabenstein? I think most native English native speakers say Rabenstein. The translation would be Ravenstone, actually. That's wild. Well, Pogue is Gaelic for kiss. Yeah. That used to help me out with, with blind dates. I think you'd have a hard time finding anyone who knows more about sea ice than Lasse. Ice is very dynamic. Ice is pushed around by the wind. And at some point, ice uh, can be ripped apart. It can push together again. And then ice ridges pile up. You cannot imagine it like a frozen lake at home in winter, which is nice and smooth. It's an impassable terrain, almost. It's, it's full of ice ridges. That effect spelled doom for endurance. Here's how Shackleton described the morning of January 19th, 1915. The ice had closed around the ship during the night, packed heavily and firmly all around the Endurance in every direction as far as the eye could reach from the masthead. There was nothing to be done till the conditions changed, and we waited through the succeeding days with increasing anxiety. They were agonizingly close to their goal. Land was in sight to the east and south, about 16 miles distant. The men tried ramming their way out, sawing their way out, chiseling their way out, In the end, all they could do was wait it out. Hope for a thaw or another gale to move the ice away. The men and the dogs lived on their pinned ship for 10 months. Shackleton was not only a charismatic personality, he also turned out to be something of a mental health genius. He knew that it would be essential to prevent his men from falling into despair, giving up hope, turning on him and each other. So he structured the days. He established routines, assignments, events. There were soccer games on the ice and hockey games. They went cross-country skiing. They kept up with their scientific sampling. They put on shows in the evenings with bits of costumes and music from the record player. They gave each other haircuts and held sled dog races. And on the 15th of the month, a great race, the Antarctic Derby took place. It was a notable event The betting had been heavy, involving stores of chocolate and cigarettes. They posed for photos and films taken by crew photographer Frank Hurley. Go to YouTube and look at some of Hurley's stuff. It's incredible footage. 
I mean, it's from 1915. It's all in black and white, but the footage is super sharp, and you really get a sense of those months of waiting. By October, the ice was crushing the ship. The boss realized that the smart thing to do was unload all the food and supplies and set up a camp on the ice. The floes, with the force of millions of tons of moving ice behind them, were simply annihilating the ship. After long months of ceaseless anxiety and strain, the end of the endurance has come. But we are alive and well, and we have stores and equipment for the task that lies before us. The task is to reach land with all members of the expedition. The forces on the ship got thicker, got, got larger, and at some point it just reached the limit of what the ship could withstand. The ship just sinks down to the bottom of the ocean. On November 21, 1915, the ship went down. Shackleton ordered the ship's flag hoisted up the mast so she'd go down with colors flying. No ship built by human hands could have withstood the strain. She went down, bows first, her stern raised in the air and the ice closed over her forever. Without her, our destitution seems more emphasized, our desolation more complete. They set up five flimsy tents on an ice floe. By April 1916, a year and three months since getting stuck, the weather was getting warmer and the ice floes were beginning to thaw. You might think that'd be good news, but then... At 11 a.m., our flow suddenly split right across under the boats. The crack had cut through the side of my tent. I stood on the edge of the new fracture and, looking across the widening channel of water, could see the spot where for many months my head and shoulders had rested when I was in my sleeping bag. How fragile and precarious had been our resting place. Our home was being shattered under our feet, and we had a sense of loss and incompleteness hard to describe. How is this story not a movie? They needed to find solid ground. Shackleton loaded up the Endurance's three lifeboats with supplies, crammed all 28 men onto them, and set out for a little uncharted rock of land called Elephant Island, about 100 miles away. It took them a week through stormy seas and dangerous icebergs. The temperature was 20 degrees below freezing point. We had now had 108 hours of toil, tumbling, freezing and soaking with little or no sleep. On April 15th, they became the first humans ever to set foot on Elephant Island their first solid ground in 497 days. They were ecstatic. The men were reeling about the beach as if they had found an unlimited supply of alcoholic liquor on the desolate shore. They were laughing uproariously, picking up stones and letting handfuls of pebbles trickle between their fingers like misers gloating over hoarded gold. The smiles and laughter which caused cracked lips to bleed afresh made me think of that glittering hour of childhood when the door is open at last and the Christmas tree, in all its wonder, bursts upon the vision. Elephant Island had fresh water and plenty of seals and penguins to eat, but they still had no ship, no shelter, except their upside-down lifeboats, and no way to communicate with the rest of the world. Privation and exposure had left their mark on the party, and the health and mental condition of several men were causing me serious anxiety. Then, the food supply was a vital consideration. 
a boat journey in search of relief was necessary and must not be delayed. That conclusion was forced upon me. Shackleton chose five of his healthiest men to accompany him on a trip to South Georgia Island over 800 miles away. There actually was a closer outpost, but reaching it would mean sailing 540 miles into the raging winds. He had the ship's carpenter rig up the biggest rowboat with makeshift sails to take advantage of the winds blowing toward South Georgia Island. The boss appointed ship's captain Frank Wilde in charge of the 22 men who would remain on Elephant Island. Then he loaded up the boat with supplies and 36 gallons of water and set sail to get help. The perils of the proposed journey were extreme. The ocean south of Cape Horn in the middle of May is known to be the most tempestuous storm-swept area of water in the world. The weather then is unsettled and the gales are almost unceasing. We had to face these conditions in a small and weather-beaten boat. We're talking hurricane-force winds, sub-zero temperatures, and the 60-foot waves known as the Cape Horn Rollers. Real rest we had none. We were cold, sore, and anxious. We fought the seas and the winds, and at the same time, had a daily struggle to keep ourselves alive. How is this not a movie? Finally, after 17 days at sea, and then 36 hours crossing the rugged island on foot, they reached the whaling station on May 20, 1916. Frostbitten, filthy, stringy-haired, gaunt, and haggard. The thought that there might be women at the station made us painfully conscious of our uncivilized appearance. Our beards were long and our hair was matted. We were unwashed, and the garments that we had worn for nearly a year without a change were tattered and stained. Close to the station, we met two small boys, 10 or 12 years of age. I asked these lads where the manager's house was situated. They ran from us as fast as their legs could carry them. Only two hours later, though, the men were warmed, fed, cleaned up, and dressed in new clothes, a radical transformation. It was only the next day that they learned that a world war was raging. We were like men arisen from the dead to a world gone mad. Our minds accustomed themselves gradually to the tale of nations in arms, of deathless courage and unimagined slaughter, of vast red battlefields. The reader may not realize quite how difficult it was for us to envisage nearly two years of the most stupendous war in history. But now Shackleton had only one fixation, the 22 men he'd left behind. My mind was bent upon the rescue of the party on Elephant Island, for whom, by this time, I entertained very grave fears. Over the next three months, Shackleton made three attempts to return to Elephant Island in three different ships. Each voyage had to turn back. Our ancient enemy, the pack, was lying in wait, and within 20 miles of the island, the trawler was stopped by an impenetrable barrier of ice. Finally, on August 30, 1916, he reached Elephant Island on his fourth attempt, a year and a half since the Endurance had gotten stuck. At 11.40 a.m., we saw tiny black figures hurry to the beach and wave signals to us. I recognized Wild. As I came nearer, I called out, Are you all well? And he answered, We are all well, boss. And then I heard three cheers. 
Wilde had husbanded the scanty stock of food as far as possible and had fought off the devils of despondency and despair on that little sand spit. Not a single man perished on the endurance expedition. They arrived in Chile to a hero's welcome, with 30,000 fans cheering them in the streets. Once they'd recovered their health back in the UK, virtually the entire crew joined the British military to fight in the war. But Shackleton didn't go home immediately. His first objective was to join the rescue mission for the Ross Sea Party. See, if this whole story weren't incredible enough, get this. There was a second part of the Shackleton expedition whose crew also wound up stranded on the ice. And nobody knows this part. Shackleton's master plan involved a second ship arriving on the other side of Antarctica. Its crew was supposed to leave stashes of food and fuel along the final quarter of Shackleton's planned journey so Shackleton's gang wouldn't have to carry so much. Incredibly, the supply team also wound up stranded for about two years. They also finally got rescued, although three of the ten men died. Read up on the Ross Sea Party sometime. After the war, Shackleton made plans to return to the Antarctic on yet another voyage, but he never got any closer than South Georgia Island. There, he suffered a heart attack and died, January 5th, 1922. He was 47. For the next 106 years, Ernest Shackleton's doomed voyage and the crew's incredible survival became the stuff of legend. There have been books and TV shows and documentaries, although for some reason, no movie. And nobody ever saw the ship itself again. For a lot of explorers, endurance is the holy grail of shipwrecks. And it shouldn't be that hard to find. We know where it went down. Supposedly, Captain Worsley at the time uh, marked the position of the ship when it went down. And we have those notes. So why is it so difficult? Why is it taken until now to find the endurance? Several reasons. So first, it is a big effort to go into this uh, region because of the ice. So you need a good ship. You need a lot of money. The second, the ice drifts all the time. They might have traveled a couple of nautical miles just with the ice. But the Frank Worsley didn't notice this because you don't feel the drift of the ice. I guess there's not a ton of suspense about whether or not Shackleton's ship was ever found. You've probably noticed the title of this episode. But after the break, you'll find out how, at last, the endurance was found. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta Sky Miles business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back. Over the decades, people have made various attempts to find the wreck of the endurance in Antarctica's Weddell Sea. Most of them ran out of money, the economy tanked, whatever. It's an expensive proposition to find the endurance because it's really hard to get to. It has been said that this is the most unreachable wreck to find. The most unreachable wreck. It's not a bad title, actually. And I must admit that is absolutely true. <laughs> because, in fact, the, the real issue is the ice. Ah, yes, the ice. Nico Vincent is a veteran undersea explorer. He spent 20 years finding famous ships, submarines, and planes underwater. So when a well-equipped, well-funded expedition to find endurance finally set off in 2019, Nico was paying close attention. A History Channel film crew was on board, hoping to document the discovery. Somewhere in these frozen seas lies the holy grail of shipwrecks. The endurance. But it's so hard to get to that no one's ever been able to hunt for the wreck. Until now. Here, the seafloor plunges down 40 times the height of Niagara Falls to a depth of 10,000 feet. And the crew believes this plane is the final resting ground of Shackleton's ship. This expedition chartered the Agulhas II, a red, sleek, state-of-the-art, 440-foot-long South African icebreaker. She's got accommodations for 100, onboard laboratories, a gym, a sauna, an auditorium, a library, and a helicopter landing pad. And in 2019, it carried a very special search tool. They came in 2019 with the state of the art of underwater, autonomous underwater vehicle, which is absolutely the best vehicle which is used now in open water. That word he's saying is vehicle. I'm not making fun of his pronunciation, trust me. His English is much better than my French. Anyway, the vehicle in question looks like a bright orange 20-foot torpedo. The propellers bite and the AUV dives. But Nico points out that this AUV is an autonomous vehicle. You pre-program it and then set it loose. And if anything goes wrong... This kind of vehicle, once they have any issue, the basic solution for them is to do an emergency ascent. An emergency ascent, automatic and unattended, is a good feature for an underwater vehicle to have in open water. Aha! But when there's ice... But when you are on ice, it's quite more complicated uh, because if you lose contact with the vehicle and do an emergency ascent, then you're losing the vehicle. That is precisely what happened. 30 hours into the dive, the AUV that's scanning the sea floor has gone missing. If they can't reconnect, they'll never find out what's below. As conditions worsen, the team makes a difficult call. The team halts their mission and reluctantly heads home. The 2019 crew never saw the AUV again. It's lost forever under all that ice. The History Channel film about that expedition wound up being really short. For Nico, though, the 2019 expedition's failure to find the endurance has its useful aspects. He was able to hire a member of its team for a new attempt called Endurance 22. 
and she prepared for him a report called Lessons Learned. And this Lesson Learned report has been my Bible over two years to build a new solution for Endurance 22. And without this, without this report, I think that we will never find the Endurance. The first big lesson, no more untethered underwater vehicles, which don't give up their data until they come back to your ship. So the first decision immediately came in my mind that we need to tether the vehicle to have a real-time feedback about what's going on. And it has been really the game changer between 2019 and 2022. For the 2022 mission, the Agulhas 2 was once again the support ship. But this time, the star of the show was an underwater vehicle made by Saab called the Sabertooth. It's a yellow rectangular slab, like a big metal sled, 12 feet long, 5 feet wide, 2 feet thick. It's ordinarily sold to, for example, oil companies, to inspect their deep-sea oil rigs. Not only is the Sabertooth tethered to the support ship with a cable, but it's also a hybrid. It converts between an autonomous underwater vehicle that executes a pre-written program and a robotic one that you drive by remote control. You push a switch and you take control, on remote control on it. So it's quite practical if you have an emergency situation with vehicle. So did you wind up using both modes of the Sabertooth? Oh, you yes. Need... We used it both. Over Endurance 22 Expedition, we made 32 dives. Over these 32 dives, we got eight emergency ascent. So we, so we have been obliged to face unexpected eight times. What sorts of things would go wrong that would need an emergency ascent? Oh my God, you have a day? <laughs> For example, you are too far or not on the good direction, but you are too far away, the level of battery is too low. And we got few times dead vehicle recovery just by towing the vehicle back to the vessel because the vehicle was almost empty of power. Oh man, so the tether is strong enough to pull the thing back on board? It's just a fiber optic of 3.5 millimeters with oh. uh, some Kevlar around. So you may pull on it, but you have to be careful to not pull too strong, to not break the tether because right. the breaking strength is quite low. The expedition departed from Cape Town, South Africa on February 5th, 2022, led by John Shears and Menson Bound. Nika Vincent was aboard as the head of underwater operations, and the chief scientist was our friend Lassa Robinstein. The 10-day journey to the Weddell Sea was wild. We had to cross the roaring 40s and the wild 50s. I don't know if you've known that term for the southern latitudes. We had summer conditions. I think the highest wave we had is six meters. Six meters is still very tall for waves. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But we wanted to be fast because the charter was limited. So we didn't want to lose a day. Oh, yeah, about that time limit. An anonymous donor contributed $10 million to this journey, which was organized by a nonprofit called the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust. The team had chartered the Agulhas II for five weeks with an optional 10-day extension. After that, the ship had to go on to its next job. So time was of the essence. Now I have a very small question for you. How did you find it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's helped to have a small, small box. The box means the search box, 
the rectangle of sea floor that they hoped to search. It measured 8 miles by 15 miles, and it was based on the Endurance's final position, as recorded by Captain and Ace Navigator Frank Worsley, using 1915's state-of-the-art navigational tool, the Sextant. And believe me, Worsley made the Sextant position absolutely, absolutely accurate. So we were extremely close from his last known position. The difficulties came by the fact that usually when you cover a search box, you go from a point A to a point B and you have a task plan. Here in uh, Weddellsee, it has been quite more complicated because due to ice, you cannot go from point A to point B. So we have been obliged to make the sub boxes for each dive and dive where the highs are lowest. In other words, ideally, they'd search the box sequentially from left to right in long parallel lines. But because of those doggone ice sheets, they had to search random mini boxes within the search box, getting in around the moving ice sheets as best they could. And that wasn't the only tricky part. The Sabretooth can carry either the equipment it needs for long-range searches of the seafloor or the equipment it needs for close-up inspection, but not both at the same time. For long-range search, you need side-scan sonar. For close-up inspection, you need stuff like LIDAR, which is laser-based radar, where the laser bounces off of nearby objects to determine their shapes. So we got one settings for long-range search, where the primary sensor was the side-scan sonar. And then for inspection, we remove this sonar and install in place the LIDAR, the 4K cameras, the 4K broadcast cameras, and, and all devices for the inspection. Sidescan sonar is a machine that blasts out audio pings and then measures the echoes, stitches the data together, and produces images of big objects underwater. I happen to know this because my great uncle was one of the inventors back in the 50s. I don't know if you know the name Professor Harold Edgerton. Yeah, of course. My, my grandmother's brother. Oh, my God. <laughs> yep. Uncle Harold. I'm very impressed. <laughs> when I was growing up, he was uh, he and Jacques Cousteau took took a prototype to Loch Ness to look for yep. the monster. Indeed. That was everyone was talking about that in my family. They, they didn't find it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Nessie is very shy. Anyway. On the Endurance 22 mission, a lot of things went right. The ice was forgiving. We were super lucky. Uh, We needed to go only 10 nautical miles through heavy ice. In almost all the years before, we had to travel 100 to 150 nautical miles through heavy ice. Also, the storms held off. Also, the Sabretooth sub worked really well. And for Lhasa, the big lucky break was the crew's health. It's not self-granted that you have 110 people on board and, uh, and there was no large COVID outbreak or so on board. That was the biggest threat to the expedition maybe in the end and not the ice. <laughs> wow. But it went well. We were lucky. There was really only one little thing that didn't go especially well. They could not find the dang shipwreck. The five weeks had gone by, 30 saber-tooth dives, with no sign of endurance. The expedition managers invoked their 10-day extension on the Agulhas charter so they could keep looking. 
And now, they were eight days into the 10-day extension period, and they still had not found endurance. The search box where we, uh, where we thought the wreck will be in was 80% already scanned, and uh, we had only two days left before the captain and the owner of the ship ordered us back to Cape Town in South Africa. But then, on March 5, 2022, the sonar picked up something. Nico asked if they could drive the saber-tooth around to get a quick video on the built-in camera to confirm that the bulky object was in fact a ship and not, you know, a big rock. But the pilot of the saber-tooth argued that there was no more time. He had to bring the AUV back up. The AUV pilot was... Uh, claiming that we are already too low on batteries and asking to uh, end of dive. But oh. I pushed, I pushed, I pushed to have the visual inspection. Just a few seconds to be sure that we are talking about woods. Not only was the object made of wood, it was, in fact, the endurance. Do you remember the first time you heard that they had spotted it? Yeah, as a chief scientist, I had a radio and I could listen to some of the other communications on board and then... I heard that the uh, head of exploration and uh, the chief, uh, the the head of the expedition, John Shears, they were ordered on the bridge to meet with Nico. And I was already like, mm, something is happening. And then at dinner, a lot of people had already a smile on their face. And uh, I think most people knew it already, although it was only official after dinner that they, that they found it. Once they'd equipped Sabretooth with its high-resolution cameras and sent it back to the spot, they found even better news. The shipwreck was pristine. It looked incredible. It wasn't rotted or rusty or eaten or degraded. Some parts of the hull looked fresh from the shipyard. We were all really surprised. Also, the head of exploration who has seen hundreds of shipwrecks in his life, he never has seen a shipwreck like this before, he told us. Yeah. Wow. In that good condition. I mean, it looks like it's in a museum, that the wood looks brand new. Yeah, because there's no light, there's no, or no organic, uh, a lot of organic activity down there. It's not a lot of sedimentation. So in the last hundred years, it was maybe, I don't know, a centimeter of sediment was falling down on the ship, so almost nothing. And um, yeah, it's, it's just a very good environment down there to conserve a shipwreck. In most oceans, sea organisms would ordinarily munch away at sunken wood, decomposing it. But not here. There is one certain worm which is... Um, which is, is the cause for um, for um, like organic erosion or so, which eats wood, for example. So in, 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 in lower latitudes, many shipwrecks suffering from this worm, I heard. And this okay. animal does not exist in Antarctica. What happened on board? Was there champagne and yelling? It's a dry vessel, so no champagne. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, but uh, no, it it was. I think that it was a huge relief for everybody because we got exactly twenty two days on site uh, to find the endurance, and and we discover her on day twenty. Oh, so you really might have missed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it emotional or less emotional because you pretty much knew you'd find it? You can never be sure that you will find it. Never. 
Okay. So the, the certainty to find your target is, is nil. You, you always, always have some, some unknown. But so finding the endurance, the most unreachable wreck of the world, it's really, really an achievement. I think it's a climax in, in, in my life. In their last two days at sea, the crew sent the Sabretooth back to the shipwreck to capture a high-resolution 3D scan. We got a, a 4K steel camera linked uh, with a laser, a LIDAR laser, to make a facsimile in 3D of the wreck. And we expect soon to have a result so accurate and so clean that anybody in the world may walk uh, on the uh, deck of the endurance with VR glasses. <laughs> so we expect this data already soon, uh, and it will be absolutely amazing. So what, what happens now, now that we know where it is, uh, do people talk about artifacts bringing back? Do they talk about uh, putting people inside a submersible? Well, um, putting people inside submersible, I do not recommend it, uh, uh, except if you want some uh, bad news at the <laughs> on the TV. Uh, um, I mean, uh, I, I don't say it's impossible, but it will be quite complicated and uh, will require a very expensive expedition. About the wreck itself, the wreck is protected by the Antarctic Treaty. Recovering artifact is forbidden uh, by the Antarctic Treaty. And uh, it's one of the reasons why we built this facsimile of the wreck to be able to show everything at a higher resolution that we can. We expect one millimeter resolution. There is a lot to study and learn over endurance uh, to make. Uh, I mean, it's far, far to be, to be over. The discovery of endurance made headlines all over the world. The photos blew people's minds. Because remember, until they were published, no human being had ever seen a color photo of Endurance. Good morning to you. It's been more than 100 years since the Endurance went down in the icy waters of Antarctica. The vessel that launched one of the most remarkable stories of survival and determination. Well, and what's being described as the Super Bowl for history buffs, the Endurance has been found. Sometimes I can't believe it, actually, that I, uh, when I read the story now that I'm kind of I'm, somehow I'm part of this story now, 100 years later. <laughs> that feels weird. Yeah. When I returned home, I mean, people told me, like, I've seen you in the New York Times, and I saw a photo in another German newspaper, and so on. Yeah. And I, it was a little bit overwhelming for me as well, I have to say. Really? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't expect that it got get this much attention. Did anyone recognize you on the street? Hey, you're that guy. No, not yet. Fortunately, no, I can still go to the supermarket <laughs> without uh, being asked for endurance. Yeah. I still remember the first time I saw that stunning photo of endurance on the New York Times homepage. It shows the stern with the word endurance arced across the transom and that original Polaris five-pointed star shining in the sub's reflected headlamps. I swear to you, my breath stopped. It, it was like some mythological object suddenly made real. Like if somebody found the actual Excalibur sword at a garage sale in Cincinnati. So the holy grail of shipwrecks has been found, and she's a beauty. Sir Shackleton took good care of her for as long as he could, and according to Nico Vincent, maybe even longer. I have a very, very great story 
to share with you. We found the wreck on 5th of March 2022, which is precisely 100 years after the birth of Ernest Shackleton in, in South Georgia. That's right. They found endurance on March 5, 2022, 100 years to the day after Sir Shackleton was laid to rest in South Georgia. But not just 100 years to the day. But it's more than that. We found the wreck uh, a few minutes after 4 p.m., okay? And we are doing some research uh, about uh, the burial of, uh, of Sir Ernest Shackleton. And we are aware that the ceremony started at 3 p.m., that maybe precisely day per day or at the hour, we found the wreck precisely when Sir Ernest Shackleton had been buried in South Georgia. That's nuts. That's crazy. It's, it is. It's, so we are pretty sure that the boss was just looking at her son on shoulder, just give his permission to find her. You've just listened to another episode of Unsung Science with David Pogue. Don't forget that the entire library of shows, along with written transcripts, await at unsungscience.com. My guests today were Lassa Robinstein and Nico Vincent from the Endurance 22 mission, whom I thank profusely. In this episode, Sir Ernest Shackleton was beautifully voiced by British voice actor Tim Redman. This podcast is a joint venture of Simon & Schuster and CBS Sunday Morning and it's produced by PRX Productions. For Simon & Schuster, the executive producers are Richard Rohrer and Chris Lynch. The PRX production team is Jocelyn Gonzalez, Morgan Flannery, Pedro Rafael Rosado, and Morgan Church. Jesse Nelson composed the Unsung Science theme music. Our fact checker is Christina Ribello, and Olivia Noble fixed the transcripts. For more of my stuff, visit davidpogue.com or follow me on Twitter at Pogue. That's P-O-G- UE. We'd love it if you'd like and follow Unsung Science wherever you get your podcasts. And spread the word, will you? Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Unsung Science ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. But before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.